Thanks. So a couple of things going on that you just need to know about before we jump into uh, today's text. Um, if only I could remember what they are. Uh, coming up here pretty quick, we have a couple of service projects. We have an opportunity to uh, converge, if you will, onto Baldick Park and uh, get that park ready for the literally thousands of kids that are going to show up at Baldick. So we would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, my goal is that every single person that calls Grace their home would participate in either the Baldick Project or the Project Around Grace. And we're even going to talk about a little bit about that as we get through the message today. But it is a wonderful time for us to join together, bring your family, bring your kids. There's plenty of, of things to do. Um, but there should be a sign-up in your bulletin. Um, we haven't got much action with sign-up, which makes me a little bit nervous. Um, but there is something very powerful when, when a few hundred people show up and uh, serve together, lock arms together. It really does uh, build the body. So we'd love for you to be about a part of that. And then next Sunday, uh, we have new member class. If you have any thoughts of becoming a member here at Grace, you need to go through that class. Because you go through the class, you don't have to be a member, but it's a great way to explore the possibility of membership, but it's a requirement to be a member. So if you want to come to the new member class, it happens uh, at three o'clock uh, next Sunday. Uh, there is a meal, so we need to know that you're coming, and all you need to do is just stop at the information counter and let them know, hey, I'm coming to new member class. We would love to have you. Um, I think last I heard, there's almost 60 people coming, so it's going to be a, a big group and a great group, so it'll be a, a great um, opportunity for you to plug in. So there is this old classic book that maybe some of you have read. Um, it's called The God's Smuggler. God's Smuggler. It's pretty old. I'm not even sure when it was published. My guess is in the early 70s, maybe late 60s. But it's about a guy named Brother Andrew and his journey of smuggling Bibles into Russia when it was, uh, the, the, the communism was at its peak. And, and, and it's just this amazing adventure story. It's an old book, but if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend getting it. It's just an easy read, but a fun read. Um, and one of the things Brother Andrew would do is he would hide all these Bibles in these secret compartments in his car but whenever he would drive in through the checkpoint, he would put one Bible on the front seat. And he would say, I would do that so that, so that I would just um, prove that it wasn't me, it was God that was making all this happen. He didn't want his ministry to be on his ingenuity. He wanted it to be all about God, which it was pretty brave if you think about it. This is, this is a big deal. You get, you get caught doing that, you go to prison. So he's taking this enormous risk. But whenever he would do things like that, he would call that the royal way. He would talk about doing things a particular way. And he'd say, this is the royal way. So we're working our way through this letter uh, by Paul called Ephesians. We're calling this series, He Is, I Am, so what? The, the idea here is that we're learning about who God is, we're learning about who we are, and then we're asking the question, so what does all that mean for our daily lives? What does it mean for our behaviors? What does it mean for the way we live out our lives? Or in other words, so what? So what does all this do for us? What difference does it make? So grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Some have said that this passage of Scripture is the most condensed section of Scripture that describes the church in action. So there's a lot for us to take out of this little passage. I want to encourage you to take notes because you're going to remember more. I also want to encourage you to take advantage of social media. If you hear something that strikes you, something that, that resonates with you, you feel a little whisper in your ear, then send it out on Facebook, send it out on Tweet, and we're going to take advantage of social media and we're going to get the message of Jesus out there. 
So just a little bit of background here before I read it. Starting in chapter 4 and really throughout the rest of Ephesians, we take a pretty dramatic shift in how Paul is writing. It, it really changes dramatically. So the, the thrust, if you will, of the first three chapters is on theology. And I'll explain that in a second. And the, the, the next three chapters are really on ethics. Let me explain that. So theology, I, I just put the definition up there so you'd know what it is. Theology is just the study or understanding of the nature of God. And here's the deal. We all have a theology. Even if you're an atheist, even if you're agnostic, you have a theology. You have an understanding or a thought about the nature of God, right? So all of us have a theology, so we need to understand that. And then what I want you to understand is that your theology shapes who you are. What you believe about God shapes your behaviors. What you believe about God shapes your responses. So it's important that you are um, uh, intentional about crafting and understanding and learning what good theology is. What is the right way to think about God? Who is God? What does God really say? What, who, is, who, who is God and, and how does that give shape to us? So we have three chapters in Ephesians that are just sentence after sentence after sentence of theology, helping us to understand who God is, all God has done, just this beautiful picture. And then all of a sudden, Paul just sort of shifts gears and he answers the question now, so what? He moves to what we call ethics. And ethics is really just a system of moral principles or rules of recognized, respected conduct. It's a way of behaving, right? So we have all this about God, and now we move into chapter 4, 5, and 6, and we have all of these ways of which we ought to respond, ways in which we ought to behave. Ephesians is packed with theology, and it's packed full of ethics as well. And that's the shift that we're making at this point. So you're going to feel a difference as I read through this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It says, as a prisoner of the Lord, and he says that because he's literally a prisoner writing this letter. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as we are called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captive. He gave gifts to his people. What does ascended mean except that he has descended to the lower uh, earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, <clears throat> excuse me, some to be pastors, some to be teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Hey. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by the every winds and teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their de deceitful scheming. Verse 15, it said, speaking the truth in love, we grow up and become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined together in every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part each part does its work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for just the, the richness of this passage and how much there is 
uh, for us in the back. I pray that you would just guide these next few minutes as we um, just highlight some of the key points out of this. I pray, Lord, uh, as I pray every Sunday, that we would leave different than we came, that we would not play church, that we would not come here just to uh, check a box and say, well, we did church today, but that we would come with the expectation that the living God is going to bring about change in us and through us, and that we will leave this building different than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul starts with this, what I think is a grand imperative. This, thank you, because I keep choking. Thanks for the water. So Paul starts with this grand imperative. You know what an imperative, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but an imperative is just a directive or a command. But he starts with these words. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Live a life worthy of the calling you received. And I love the imagery here because what he's really saying is, is who you are beget some sort of behavior. So if you were a U.S. Marine, there is a code of conduct, there is a way of behaving, there's a way of, of being a U.S. Marine that brings honor to the Marine Corps. It's a, it's a way of being worthy of the calling you have to be a U.S. Marine. If you joined a fraternity or a sorority, there was rules of conduct, ways of beha- behaving that were part of being a part of that structure. So, so if you were born into the royal family, right, there was a, an expectation or there is an expectation on the royal family to live a particular way, to, to exude a particular type of behavior that brings honor to the royal family. Well, isn't it fascinating that Paul says that we all get our name from Christ, and if you've made a decision to be a Christ follower, you are an heir and a co-heir with Christ, which actually makes you royalty. It actually makes you royalty, and Paul is saying, if you're royalty, act like it. Act like your royalty. And so the rest of this, this passage, really the rest of the next three chapters, all of the imperatives, all of the commands serve to inform us what it looks like to live a life worthy. This is what they call the primary imperative. This is the primary command. As a matter of fact, you could say a, a perfect title for the book of Ephesians would be how to live the royal way or to live a life worthy because all of the rest of these imperatives give shape and meaning to what it means for us to live the royal way. This is what Brother Andrew and the God smuggler meant when he was talking about, I want to live the royal way. And Paul is saying to you and I, live the royal way. So this royal way is living a life worthy. It's, it's, it's knowing that, that there's something special about what God has called us to. So look at verse 2. In order for us to live a life worthy, to live the royal way, we have to be completely humble. Now, it would have been hard enough if Paul had just said humble, Right? But no, he wants to make sure he kind of rubs it in a little deeper. He wants to make sure that he gets our attention. So he actually says, be completely humble. And the thing here that we need to understand is, well, what does it mean to be humble? Well, to be humble in the, in the biblical sense, when we talk about humble, we talk about Moses was the most humble man uh, that walked the face of the earth. It's this picture of knowing who you are in light of who God is. It's knowing that all of your gifts and all of your talents, everything that you do, you do because God has empowered you and entrusted and given you the ability to do it. It's having that clear understanding that if, if God doesn't show up, you really bring nothing of value to the table. That's what godly humility really is. It's, it's this real understanding of what we talked about last week, that paradox of, of the Christian faith of knowing that when I'm weak, when I know that I'm, I'm dependent on God, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Amen. 
that paradox is kind of, if you will, a, an added definition to what it means to be humble. And here's the deal. When you read through Paul's letter, Paul often, often connects humility and unity. What he's saying is you really can't have unity unless it starts with humility. To truly get along with another person, you have to humble yourself and see value in their opinion, see value in what they're doing, and that takes humility. So unity is, to have unity, humility is absolutely necessary. So the word completely humble in the original Greek is actually one word, and it's actually describing this state of mind. And what I want you to get there is that this is, this is why it's so important to pay attention to what you're thinking about. What's going on in your, in your mind? Are you thinking about what is true, what is noble, what is good, what is right, what is pure? Or are your thoughts more engaged on yourself? Are you thinking thoughts like, after all I've done, this is what happens to me? Boy, I deserve so much more than I have. If it weren't for me, nothing would ever happen. I do more than anybody else. If you have those kind of thoughts and you allow your brain to stay in those kind of thoughts, it's going to take away from your ability to walk in humility. What you think about actually matters. If you have thoughts that are self-focused, self-protecting, self-aggrandizing, it will always unravel unity. And this is not just about the church. This is about your home. This is about your workplace. This is about your neighborhood. When you get in a place where you're so focused on after all I've done and I'm the one and I, 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 unity is done. It's kaput. I never said kaput from the stage. I kind of like that word. <laughs> kaput. A state of mind is, is this idea of, of not being self-focused. That's part of the royal way. When I stop and I remember who I was without Jesus, it serves to guard me from becoming impressed with myself. Remembering and, and putting this all in the right place is, is, is just is, is, is helping us to live the royal way. And what we need to understand, and this is where it gets screwed up, being humble is not about being timid or being self-effacing. Paul actually teaches, he says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. There's this intentionality, this state of mind that we have to have where we actually think about the other person and we actually purposely say in our minds that person is better than me. Think of others better than yourselves. It's this position of, of being humble. And he says you are to be completely humble. Not a little bit, but completely humble and completely gentle. You're to be humble and gentle. And here's the deal. You cannot really be gentle without being humble. The two kind of work hand in hand. They, they work together. To be humble means that you don't power up on people. You, you stay calm in the midst of, of conflict. You stay gentle. Do you, any of you have a friend who is humble and gentle? Can I tell you, those people are no fun to argue with. Right? There is nothing fun about arguing with somebody who you can't push their buttons. You can't get them riled up. You can't get them on the other side. They're just, they're calm. They're humble. They're gentle. It is the most disarming thing. So unity comes when we have this position of humility, when we have this position of gentleness in who we are. This is about our demeanor. It's about the way we, we behave that can be so disarming. Paul says, live a life worthy. Live into your royal calling by being completely humble, gentle. And look at the, the rest of verse 2. It says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. The words bearing with one another 
I think would be better translated, and some of your translations may have it this way, but when you look at the original language, I think the better words are putting up with one another. To me, it's stronger than bearing with one another. Bearing with one another sounds kind of religious to me. Putting up with one another sounds hard to me. But the idea here is that we actually are purposeful in putting up with one another of, of overlooking people's shortcomings. And you know the best way to overlook people's shortcomings is to realize you got some shortcomings of your own. Right? And so you have this, I didn't think people would clap. I never know where you guys are going to clap. You have shortcomings. Yes, I do. You, you guys are, I just never know. So, so it's this picture of, of, of actually of, of putting up with one another. How much do we need to learn to put up with one another in the context of the church, in the context of our home, in the context of our workplace, in our neighborhood? This idea of, of actually overlooking other people's shortcoming would radically change the unity within the body of Christ, the unity even within our community. And I want to be clear about something. You get zero credit you get a bad grade if you don't do this the right way. As a matter of fact, you can put up with somebody, but you can put up with them in a, in a pretty condescending way. So you can say to yourself, well, you know, you know, Mary, that's just the way she is. She, she's special. You know, that's just, that's just the way she is. So that's not putting up with somebody. That's being very condescending. It's actually maybe a little bit rude even, right? So this isn't about just making excuses for people and thinking less of them. Because remember, Paul tells us that we are to think people better than ourselves. So, so these things work together. Verse 3, it says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. In other words, the royal way requires intentionality. It requires that we be humble and gentle and patient with one another. It requires that we have this mindset to do it. We have to make every effort. It isn't just going to happen. We don't say yes to Jesus and voila, all of these things just happen. We have to be mindful. So I love the picture. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We have to be careful about what we allow to rattle around in our heads. We have to make every effort to be one. So Paul continues to unpack what it looks like for us to live the royal way. And, and he makes a little bit of a shift here, but, but he starts to talk about this idea that God calls and he equips us to serve one another. That God gives us gifts and talents. And then he says to us, I've given you these gifts and talents as a way for you to serve each other in your home, in your workplace, in the church at large. So look at verse 7. And this is not, probably not going to connect right away, but I promise I'll connect the dots. He says, but each one of you, grace has been given as Christ appropriated. This is why it says he ascended on high. And then the, the NIV, the older version says he led captives in his train. He gave gifts to men. And this language is a bit confusing. If you read through this before today, you probably got to this and like, seems like a, like he's just, has a random thought here that doesn't fit, but let me just tell you it fits perfectly because when he talks about this captives in his train, he's making a, a pretty dramatic point. What he's saying is Jesus has already won. Jesus is the victor. He leads captives in his train. He has gone to war. He has won the war. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has victory over all of the principalities of darkness. He has victory over all of this. And, and what's really going on here is it's a, a reference to a, a common practice. When a king in that day would go off to war and they would, they would battle against another, another country, they would, if they won the battle, when they came back to their, their home, when they came back through the city great gates, they would, they would literally have a parade. 
And the king would lead the parade and he would come in through the city center down Main Street, down the center of the city and people would be gathered on the side and literally behind him would be the people that they had taken captive, the people that they had taken into exile. There would literally be a train of captives behind the king that symbolized victory, that symbolized we won. So the people would be euphoric. There would be a, a party. We won this war, and now he's coming back with captives in his train. And then the other part that would, would be a common practice is the king would share the spoils of war. So not only would they win the battle, but they would take the possessions of the people. And I know this is all kind of weird, and we have to ask questions like, it's hard for me to understand that, that era, but this is what was happening in society. And so they would take the spoils, and they would come back, and they would literally give gifts to the people from the spoils of war. And so here's what Paul's saying. Jesus won the victory over darkness. Satan and all of his minions are in his train. They are behind him. He has victory over all of them, and he has power and authority. And so when he comes in and he marches in, then he gives us gifts. And the gifts that he gives us are the gifts to serve one another. In other words, he gives you in a particular way to use your particular uh, gifting to serve one another. So he goes on to say, Actually, what this is, is this is like an expansion of, of Ephesians 2.10. You know, we've talked about Ephesians 2.10. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do a good work, which he prepared in advance. So not only did God make you a work of art, but he made you to make art. And he's given you all of the gifts and all of the talents and all of the skills to do this. That's the gift. So when you look at that passage that we just read, and it says, and he gives gifts to his people. The gifts are the gifts of service. So God made you to do something. Get this. God made you to do something. And the only way you will have satisfaction in life is to do the thing that God's made you to do. This is so important that we get this. God made you to do something and life is found in doing it. So there's an Olympic runner, his name was Eric Little, and he said, God made me fast and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And my question to you is, what do you do when you feel God's pleasure? What do you do when you say to yourself, this is what God made me to do? This is what God gifted me to do. And when you do it, you can actually feel God smiling and saying, that's what I made that guy to do. That's what I made that girl to do. And so there's this picture of serving in the exact place where God has made you. And that will bring about life in you. So at Grace, we talk a lot about these six essentials. We talk about the fact that you have to have all six of these in order to grow as a follower of Christ. So you have to, you have to gather. We're doing it right now. That the, the, This thing we call church coming together on Sunday morning or is an important part of you growing spiritually. You can't neglect the gathering on Sunday. And we talk about the fact that you need to serve. And we talk about the fact that you need to connect. You need to be with a smaller group of people doing life. And I'm not supposed to say that anymore, but it just keeps coming out. Sorry. You're supposed to connect with a smaller group of people and share your life with one another and, and your battles and your victories and it'll help you. You can't do this just by coming on Sunday. So you gather, connect, you serve. We want you to have hearts of devotion. We want you to have hearts of generosity and we want you sharing your faith with other people. So those are the six essentials. But one of the key essentials up there is serve. Paul's saying to live a life worthy, to live into the royal way, you have to be humble, gentle, patient, protecting and fighting for unity, and you have to serve one another. Use the gifts that God has given you to serve one another. I said it earlier, but this really is the picture of the church in action. All of these 
imperatives. All of these commands are, are interconnected to describe what it looks like to live the royal way. When we serve with gentle patience and when we serve with humility, it has this profound effect on the church. As a matter of fact, Paul says, look at the second part of verse 12 and 13. This is what happens when we serve. He says, serve, live life the royal way so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach the unity in the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If we do this the right way, if we serve the right way, the whole body is built up and we have unity if we serve with the right attitude. The fact is, if you serve with a bad attitude, something completely different happens. As a matter of fact, giftedness without humility always leads to abuse. Always. You can take it to the bank. Giftedness without humility always leads to abuse because our giftedness becomes a way for us to lord over people. It becomes a way for us to manipulate people. It becomes a way for us to move people to our own agenda. We start to see people as objects to, to, to get a work done. And so you see incredibly gifted people that lack humility and they become abusive. We see it in the church. We see it in the workplace. We see it all over the place. Giftedness without humility will always lead to abuse. And that is not the royal way. When we serve with the right attitude, the church, the body of Christ is built up. It's what makes the church the church. When we serve in the right way, our homes are transformed. When we serve the right way and we, we serve with humility, it changes our communities. It changes our neighborhood. It changes every relationship we have. Serving with the right attitude advances the mission and the purpose of the church. It actually makes God famous. Look again at the second part of verse 12 and 13. We serve by wrapping our, our service in the gifts of the fruits, he says, so that the body of Christ is built up until we reach the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So in addition to creating this, this unity amongst the body, we become mature. It's what grows us up. When you begin to serve, God uses those acts of service as a way of growing you in your faith. The passage actually says you become mature. This is so cool. When you find your fit, when you find your calling and serve, and you serve wrapping your service in humility, being humble and gentle and patient, then the church is what the church was intended to be. And we become mature. We unleash immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine in this place and in our homes. So we serve. And serving is not one of the six essentials because we are desperate for volunteers. You get that? We do not talk about serving because we just need one more body in the children's ministry. We don't talk about serving because, boy, if somebody would just, just show up and help those kids and be a small group leader in storm or revolution, that would sure help. All of that's true, but we, impact, we put serving up there as the six essentials because the scripture tells us when we serve, we become mature. So some of you might be asking, well, how do I know where to serve? And can I just tell you, you will find your way when you get out of your seat and you serve. So if you serve somewhere... If you serve somewhere and it's not a fit, 
We don't want you to serve there anyway. We want you to serve in the place where God has gifted you to serve so that you feel God's pleasure. So you plug in and you say, you know what, this doesn't work for me. But if you're just sitting there, you're never going to get plugged in and you're never going to figure out what it means to serve the way God has called you to serve. There's something supernatural that happens when we serve. Here's the deal. When we show up at Baldick Park, when two or three hundred of us show up at Baldwick Park and, and do that field thing, when we show up here at Grace and we do all the outside work and planting the flowers and we serve together, something supernatural is going on. I mean, it's great and we're going to have fun and we're going to bless the community, but literally what the scripture is telling us is that when we serve together, something supernatural happens and the church is built up and unity is formed. You need to sign up. You need to be there. Why? Because you want to be part of something supernatural happening. Look at the last part of verse 13. Paul returns to the same language that he used in chapter 3 that we just talked about last week. He says, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You want to know what will fill you to the fullness of Christ? You want to know what it means to be satisfied, joy-filled, to have this sense of purpose? You want to know what it looks like to bring joy into the lives of others? Then humble yourself and give your life on behalf of others. Serve others. Do that thing that God has called you to do. You got to get in the game. You got to plug in. Paul is informing us that spirit-wrapped serving is in fact the only way to mature in Christ. Look at verse 14. He says, then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful, deceitful scheming. You will grow up and be solid in your faith when you learn to serve, wrapping your service in godly humility. So let me ask you a question, and I just want you to answer it honestly in your own mind as I ask the question. Do you feel like your life is a roller coaster? Do you have these wild influxes of great joy and just intense sorrow? Do you experience seasons of strong faith, like, like you know who God is, and in the next minute you're like questioning everything about your faith? Do you have these, these huge swings in your faith walk? Do you sometimes feel like you're just being blown by the wind? Here's the good news. Paul's saying here's the antidote to that. Here's how you grow up. Here's how you become solid in your faith. And we will always have influxes of emotion. I get that. But, but this is something different. When every, every word you hear takes you in a different direction and you're just not sure about your faith. And Paul says, do you want to be sure? Do you want to get off the roller coaster of faith? Then you need to serve in godly humility. You need to give yourself to the very thing that God has called you to do. And he will use that to grow you up. We are called to meditate and to remember. We're called to make sure our theology is, is in the right place. So we have those first three chapters, and we are to remember. Remember, in three chapters of Ephesians, we're only told to do one thing, and that's remember. Now he shifts gears and says, as you remember, I want you to give your life away to other people. As you remember who God is, let that inspire you to give your life away. We're to meditate and remember that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has freely given us Jesus. He's lavished on us wisdom and understanding. He enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we have hope. He gives us the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He shows us his incomparable riches. He makes us his work of art so that we can make art. We have to have a mindset on these truths. We have to serve with gentleness and patience. That's the royal way. The truth of the matter is, 
We are called to live a life like Christ. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus was equal with God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a man. But not just a man, he made himself a servant. But not just a servant, a servant that went to the cross. And he died on the cross and he was buried and he resurrected. And the scriptures tell us that he was taken to the highest place and seated at the right hand of God. And all power and all authority has been given to him. And then he says, and I give that power and authority to you. When you say yes to me, I give you my Holy Spirit. And you walk in the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The fact is, Jesus modeled the royal way. And Paul is saying, it's time for us to walk in the royal way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for just uh, Paul's excitement as he writes this and how it's just so evident to me uh, that he was writing to us, this church. He was writing to Grace Community Church and saying, live this out. Let the truth of who God is, the truth of what God has done, let the truth of Christ's sacrifice on the cross compel us to love and good deeds. Lord, I pray that we would just not be another church doing a Sunday service, but that we would continue to have an impact uh, not just on each other, but on the entire community across the world. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. Help us to walk in the royal way. In Jesus' name, amen. I want